Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. Today is our Labor Day special. I'll be talking to Stanley Fishman about barbecue and grass-fed beef for your holiday cookouts. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this week in the world of real food. Wisconsin Raw Dairy Farmer Vernon Hirschberg will be represented by the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund in his upcoming trial over allegations of violating the Wisconsin Food and Dairy Code. The court date for his trial is now set for January 7th after originally being scheduled for September. The Farm to Legal Consumer Defense Fund is an excellent organization which helps fight for the freedoms of family farms and I'm very proud to see them defending Vernon Hirschberger. In other raw milk news, Missouri farmers Armand and Teddy Betchard will be able to continue their deliveries at a central distribution point. In 2009, the Betchards were investigated by undercover health department agents who claimed that unlicensed farmers could only deliver milk directly to customers. The state of Missouri has given them consent to continue with their distribution point. This is a huge victory for the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund and also for the right for consumers to get fresh raw milk. Next, one week after the USDA shut down the Central Valley Meat Company's slaughterhouse for animal abuse, the plant has now been given the okay to reopen. The Food and Safety Inspection Service says Central Valley has submitted an extensive corrective action plan which will include increased training in its employees in humane handling to guarantee that only animals that can stand and walk are processed. I see these changes as a small improvement, if improvement at all. The only humane way to raise meat is for the cows to be grass-fed their entire lives. Also, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has studies which find that quotas for cod and haddock could be cut by 70% next year, and yellowtail could be cut by 50%. Factors in the decrease of the fish population are attributed to overfishing, climate change, and rapid growth of ocean predators such as seals and dogfish. Because of decreasing fish population, I urge listeners to only eat sustainable seafood. A guide to what fish are sustainable can be found at the website for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And finally, a DNA test has revealed that the salmonella outbreak in cantaloupe a couple weeks ago has been due to Chamberlain Farms in Owensville, Indiana. The salmonella bacteria had sickened 178 people, 62 of whom were hospitalized. Because of outbreaks like these, I opt for buying fresh, organic fruit from farmers that I know. And now for our main course, which today is barbecuing grass-fed beef for your Labor Day picnic. This Monday will be Labor Day, and it's important to know why you should serve grass-fed beef at your picnics. Listeners to this show know I recommend pastured meats because they're better for the animals, they're better for your health, and they're better for the planet. But you may wonder if you should grill the meat at all because of carcinogens that the flames produce. Well, if you grill your meat the traditional way, this won't be a problem. The traditional ways of grilling throughout history and all over the world involve a process of grilling where the food never is directly cooked over the heat. 
Another important reason to continue barbecuing on Labor Day is that this national holiday always falls on a Monday. Recently, Veganjelicals have tried to make all Mondays Meatless Monday. Now, I'm opposed to Meatless Monday as I see it being healthy and good for the environment when meat is grass-fed. Meatless Monday gets people to eat fake meat from genetically modified, unfermented soy, which is destroying our agriculture system. And has anyone actually converted to vegetarianism on Meatless Monday? I doubt it. If they don't know the truth about meat, they'll just go back to eating factory farm meat on Tuesday. We need a better plan. Here to talk with me about that better plan is Stanley Fishman, author of the books Tender Grass-Fed Meat and Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue. The two of us always make sure to keep our Mondays meaty. Stanley, great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. I'm really glad to be back here, Aaron, and I agree totally with everything you just said. It was so nice to hear that. Right, and I agree with everything that you say in your blog, your books, and also your Facebook page, which has really become a great forum. I'm glad to contribute to it. People can see on the Facebook page for Dender Grass-Fed Meat. Stanley posts a new topic pretty much every day and has a lot of great people contribute very wise uh, comments to it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really nice to do that and to just see how many people really do get it about food and grass-fed meat and understand the importance of eating like our ancestors did. And I love both of your books. So your first book was Tender Grass-Fed Meat, which talked basically just kind of general thing of how to cook all types of grass-fed meat, mostly uh, cooking uh, over the stove, um, oven. And then you did a follow-up book called Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue, which talked a lot about how we don't have to give up our love for grilling for you know the traditional way of cooking things, especially on picnics like Labor Day that's coming up. So explain to us a little bit about how you discovered what the traditional ways to grilling were and kind of how you were handling things before discovering that. Okay, well, you know, I started researching the traditional ways of doing things because I missed barbecue. To backtrack a bit, I'd been concerned about all these studies that claimed that if you barbecue, you're, there's carcinogens that'll go into the meat and saying that it isn't healthy and so on. And so I cut back on barbecue for a long time, which was difficult for me because I'd always enjoyed it. And I began thinking about this inherent contradiction, which is that all the people studied by Dr. Weston A. Price barbecued their meat. And all the peoples that he studied, as long as they were eating their traditional diet, the foods of their ancestors, and avoiding modern foods, were free of modern diseases, including cancer. So I had the question, if barbecuing increases the risk for cancer, why did these people never have it when barbecuing was their main way of of cooking meat. So I began thinking that there had to be something they did differently than what we do. So I began researching it, and uh, uh, it's it's sort of difficult to research old ways of doing things because the older cookbooks, they generally just assumed that you knew how to cook. And so they'd give you a list of ingredients and say, uh, grill it and cook till done, and that would be it. Not too much on the techniques, but by reading old novels, old histories, and some um, not-so-old cookbooks. I mean, the not-so-olds were ones written in the 19th century and the early 20th century. I came to understand that almost all of them would never cook meat directly over a hot fire, and which is the main way that people barbecue in the United States. 
And when I, they would either cook it just in front of the fire, usually with the drip pan under it to catch the drippings that, and the fat that they use for sauces and gravies and so on, or just put on the meat. But they'd never put it directly over the fire. Or if they cooked it over the fire, it would be a very low fire, and the meat would be about two feet up. So there would be no exchange of, uh, no way that the meat would get scorched or burnt or any of those things which create the risk factors. And so I began uh, experimenting with trying to barbecue that way myself, uh, obviously modernizing it a bit because there's not too many people who are good at building wood fires and burning wood down to charcoal. And so I found some good old-fashioned charcoal to use and um, found that you could do it all in a modern covered grill. And with some experimentation, I began getting better barbecue than I ever did before which is kind of a wordy answer, but, but that's how it happened. And um, so often when I have a question about how to cook or how to eat, when I look to, to all the cooking wisdom that, that humanity has accumulated over thousands of years, I usually do find the answer. Right. Well, that's a great story, and certainly and it's a good point you bring up about the traditional ways that cultures had done it and that it's a very recent thing that, producing these carcinogens in the meat. I mean, it's similar to how meat is not bad for you, but the recent ways of having them grain-fed and giving these hormones, it's, it's very much the recent methods. And it's interesting that you mentioned the use of charcoal because certainly there's a lot of debates now about what's the best way to cook charcoal, natural gas, propane. So you find that charcoal is the best way to cook the grass-fed meat? Uh, yeah, you see, what I found, certainly our ancestors didn't use propane or gas. And I keep I try to do things like them, but in a modern way, so it's easy. And there's different kinds of charcoal. The charcoal that most people think of, the uh, traditional charcoal, modern charcoal in the U.S., has pro- it has coal and all kinds of chemicals and uh, filler materials in it and materials to make it ignite all the stuff that people never used. But traditional charcoal, by which I mean 100% lump charcoal, is thousands of years old. And people have been using that to cook with for thousands of years. Something else that is pretty much the equivalent is where they take hardwood charcoal like that, grind it into dust, and then compress it, maybe hold it together with a vegetable binder, small amount of that, and then you can use you can use briquets of that stuff, which will give you pretty a very similar flavor and cooking technique. The other thing is that when you, in the process of making charcoal, all the toxins that are in the wood burn off, so you're just left with pure fuel, which can give you a terrific flavor. And uh, in a covered grill, it's very easy to control the temperature and um, very easy to cook with, and it lasts a long time, and it gives a good flavor, uh, gives a great flavor. So at this point, uh, the only barbecuing that I do is with hardwood charcoal, either lump charcoal or the type of hardwood charcoal briquets I was talking about. I certainly agree with you that charcoal is the best way. And certainly in the green world, I know there's some debate about that because of how charcoal burns, what it emits into the air. But the thing I look at is, okay, that's true. I mean, and it's true that like natural gas doesn't, emit anything into the air when it burns, but what people leave out about natural gas and propane is everything that goes through to make it 
it, that's very damaging that I think anything that charcoal emits into the air is not as bad as all of the energy and the waste that goes into making this propane because it doesn't it doesn't make itself. It's a very wasteful product and anyone that wants to know really about why natural gas is not this clean fuel that we think it is, I recommend they see the movie Gasland. That's a movie I should probably see myself because I've, you know, I've come to feel that often when they think of modern or more technological ways to do things, it usually turns out worse in terms of pollution just because of what they have to do to manufacture it, as you pointed out. And the other thing which, which I'm very cognizant of is that, you know, our, our species, if you want to put it that way, or humanity has been cooking with charcoal for many thousands of years, and our bodies have adjusted to it. Uh, you know, I, I can't prove it, but I believe that our experiences get carried on in our genetics and from generation to generation. And when you start doing something for the first time, like GMOs or cooking with, car, with gas or all the things we do that humans have never done before. We, nobody really knows how it's going to affect us, and, and, and our, it's new to our bodies, and uh, they don't often really don't know what to do with what we're putting into them. But if you're eating traditional food like traditional meat, which is so different from factory meat, and using traditional fuels and cooking in a traditional way, in effect, you're doing something that, you're, that in my opinion, your body knows how to deal with it and how to use it to its best advantage. I agree. I think a lot of really of how our food system got so messed up is by the industrialization and certainly not just the food itself, but the way it's cooking of you know, making these industrialized propane and natural gas. Because we find it, I mean, that's how cows started becoming grain-fed was moving these plants into the city where they weren't in the farms. And similarly with raw milk, that's a thing. It started being pasteurized because it was getting dirty with moving these processing plants in and just last week, we found with our guest Peggy Sutton of To Your Health Sprouted Flour, there was a thing that all flour used to be sprouted, but then when they started industrialization and plants in the city, they didn't have time to sprout the grains. So, you know, it really, it all fits together of going back to our traditions is the healthiest way to eat and to cook. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And you know, you mentioned the grain-fed meat, and um, there's so many bad things that grain feeding does to meat. But one of the things it does is, from what I've seen in my experience, is it makes the meat a lot more watery. You know, cows don't know what to do with eating grain. They can, right. they can live on it or gain weight, but it's very bad for them in so many ways that it's uh, just some of the ways we understand. They get really upset stomachs. They give off huge amounts of methane gas because they have upset stomachs. And in addition to that, they, uh, their, their meat is very different. And I think that one of the reasons that people started grilling over high heat is because when you have so much water in the meat, uh, you pretty much need high heat to deal with it if you're making a steak or something like that. But if you, you're making a grass-fed steak or, uh, and you cook in the traditional way, it just works perfectly because it has the natural balance of nutrients that our body is used to. Whereas with grain-fed, you have an imbalance of everything. You have far more omega-6s than you should have, far less CLA, which is a vital nutrient. And I'm also convinced that we haven't discovered all the nutrients yet or how they interact. But, uh, you know, our ancestors from thousands and thousands of years of seeing what worked and passing it on from generation to generation 
they knew what to eat. And uh, somehow that's a lot more convincing to me than some study by a food scientist who works for a corporation that's selling the product. Me too. And, and it also gets me how um, people at the uh, – try to say at the Weston A. Price is paid off by these – you know, these meat industries and things like that, which is like, really, because we pretty much attack the the big ag meat industry. I mean, we support all small farmers, so. <laughs> yeah, well, it's that they're paying off Weston A. Price. It, it just made me laugh because they're, in my opinion, one of the few truly good, noble organizations that you're going to find left on this planet. They're all about helping people to eat healthy and discover the healthy ways of our ancestors. They're not paid off by anybody. The industrial food system hates them and tries to diminish them. And I mean the whole industrial food system, including the big meat industry. And they're the best friend they can be to small farmers and traditional ranchers and grass-fed farmers and even in just preserving the knowledge of how we can make and eat traditional foods. I think they're a terrific organization. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everything that I've found out with them, everything checks out. No uh, no flaws in any of their recommendations. I mean, I think a lot of that accusation is by these vegangelicals who – the vegangelicals will do anything they can to not let people know that there's a grass-fed beef that's healthy for you and good for the planet. Yeah, because I think a big part of their argument is that meat is terrible for you, all meat, and that it's also really bad for the planet with all of the uh, resources that have to go to produce it. But the fact of the matter is is that grass-fed meat is great for us. It's a totally different product. It's probably the oldest food of humanity, the one when you have untainted pure meat, eating its natural food, living the life, the cows living the life they should in the open, a tranquil life, and is, um, is, is great for us. But the other part of it is is that all the industrial food production is what really damages, damages things, in my opinion. And uh, if, I can see that industrial meat would be dead, bad for people that, with all the things they put into it. I mean, they, they feed them stuff like chicken manure, chicken feathers, cement balls, uh, genetically modified grains, um, restaurant plate waste, candy bars. I actually once saw a photo of some grain-fed farmer who feeds candy bars to her cows that she gets from a candy factory with the wrapper and everything. Uh, that's, this is a pretty common practice, too. Uh, you know, there there is no comparison, but I like your phrase, evangelical vegans, because I think their beliefs are totally faith-based. The science isn't behind it. If we were meant to just eat vegetables, we'd probably have four stomachs. Exactly. That's an important thing to point out because they'll always try to debate the whole teeth argument saying that our teeth aren't like sharp enough, which eh, there's some with that. But our teeth are certainly different than herbivores. I mean, they are omnivore teeth. But if that argument doesn't go, then there's the multiple stomach argument as well as a number of others. There was a Weston A. Price member years ago, Stephen Burns, wrote, I think it was like – the 13 myths about vegetarianism, and he had a whole list of reasons of why we're clearly omnivores. Yeah, well, you know, to me, this this brings out one of the most interesting facts is that when Dr. Weston A. Price uh, noticed that every generation of his patients had, uh, were less healthy, he was a dentist and they had worse teeth than the preceding generation, 
he happened to look at a National Geographic magazine, and he saw photos of some supposedly primitive people who were smiling and had absolutely perfect teeth, teeth like he'd never seen before. So this motivated him to decide that he was going to travel all around the world looking for people who were who had this kind of good health and uh, well-formed heads and all that. And he would, he would look for those who were eating their traditional diets, and he would look for those who were eating modern diets and compare them. They'd be the same people genetically, same ancestry. It, the only difference would be what, what they ate. And, he, and Dr. Price was very pro-vegetarian when he set out. He fully expected to find that all these healthy peoples would be complete vegetarians. And what he found instead is that every one of them ate a lot of animal foods. Not only did they all eat animal foods, some of them only ate animal foods, though some ate a much more balanced diet, you would say, but that all of them had what they called sacred foods, foods that they would eat to get to recover from illness, to, re, to stay healthy, to heal from a wound, because a lot of them had uh, physically dangerous lives. Or if uh, a woman wanted to get pregnant, they were foods they ate for fertility, and every one of those sacred foods, things like butter, um, uh, fish eggs, and many other things, every single one of their sacred foods came from an animal source. And because Dr. Price had integrity, he put aside his preconceived beliefs and reported the truth about the way things are, which is one of the reasons that I have so much respect for his work. Oh, me too. And a thing I think that needs to be done is... Um I think there are a lot of myths that have uh, come out about the Weston A. Price Foundation and about Dr. Price himself because earlier, you know, okay, so we've concluded the myth they are – the Weston A. Price is in no way paid off by the meat industry because the mainstream meat industry, certainly Weston A. Price is very anti. Another one, one time I saw someone on the internet trying to say that the Weston A. Price Foundation and Sally Fallon get it wrong because – Weston A. Price was a vegetarian. So that also not true. He was pro-vegetarian before his studies, but certainly changed his mind when exploring the world for, I think it was a process of like 10 years. So yeah, very well, extensive study. Now, you see, uh, it makes me laugh at some of these studies they have that say uh, meat is bad, vegetables are good, where they just examine some reports and come up with a theory. He actually went out there physically for 10 years, met with these people, saw how they ate, uh, met with their cousins in the city who were eating a modern diet and were sick as a dog, uh, and had all these diseases. He sent 30,000 samples of, of native foods that he found to be tested back to his labs in California. And he spent 10 years of his life doing that. So when you say that's a study, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Right, it is a study. The China study is not a study. I mean, that was uh, an observation and a hypothesis. And in regards to factory farm meat, um, one of the things also that these cows are fed is soy, which I think is very interesting. That, and I certainly, with all that Dr. Price has found about the effects of soy being at high in phytic acid and all of the dangers that it does to you. I have to think that a big problem with a lot of this factory-fed meat, in addition to the cows not being able to digest corn, is, I mean, also they can't digest soy, and humans really can, can't digest too much unfermented soy as well. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with that either because, you know, they've actually found that 
so many people have allergies to soy now, and many of those people can't eat meat. And what they found is that the meat they can't eat is meat that was fed soy. So if the meat industry feeds soy to cattle, and I would say most, just about every feedlot feeds a certain amount of soy to cows because soy will make animals gain weight. It'll uh, make chickens grow at a much faster rate. But those uh, those substances in the soy that make people allergic and uh, various other soy substances carry go right from the feed into the, the meat. So when you eat the meat, you're getting that. And you're also eating an animal that was not meant to, to eat soy, and nearly all of the soy is genetically modified as well, which makes it even worse. And, of course, none of it is traditionally fermented. There's uh, been a fair amount of opinion, which I think is mainly true, that traditionally fermented soy, so, some of which has been fermented for as long as a year or more, has far less of the phytic acid and the toxins and the mock female hormones than most of the soy that's used in food and, and feed today. But any way you look at it, it's something that, in my opinion, should never be fed to animals or humans, at least in its, it, unless it has been fermented for a long time and then only in small amounts. Agreed. Yeah, a few weeks ago, my guest Sue Ann Hastings, she has a soy allergy, and she said that in the U.S. it's been very hard for her to find meat that she could eat because of all the soy that it's fed. I mean, even some of these so-called grass-fed beef companies – they finish them off with grains, and she said in other countries she can eat the meat there. So that's certainly something that she's witnessed firsthand. I should also mention about her, I recommended your idea of instead of soy sauce, using fish sauce when eating Asian foods, and she liked that a lot. So I think you've certainly done some great work as far as exposing soy and talking the dangers of it. I love your idea for a soyless Sunday. I think that's ingenious. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it was kind of inspired as a counterpart to Meatless Monday, which, uh, you know, I'm going to happily barbecue on Monday maybe twice. And it's, I'm not going to be barbecuing to tofu or, um, or GMO corn either. It's going to be good meat. And it, it struck to me that if you want to have a day to get rid of something that really harms the planet, that really harms humanity, that really there's absolutely nothing good about it except it makes a lot of money for people, I thought a soyless Sunday would be a great idea because it's going to be a lot harder to do than a meatless Monday because just about every processed food has some form of soy in it. But if enough of us stop eating that stuff or if enough of us stop buying meat that was fed with soy, things would change. You know, nobody really asked for them to start feeding soy to livestock or to put soy in everything or to substitute the good old food of the past with the cheap soy or sat soy substitutes. That's just something that industry did so they could make more money. Most people never even noticed it. So uh, I thought that would be a much more benefit than um, not eating meat on Monday. I think the Soilless Sunday is something that should be promoted. The Weston A. Price Foundation and Kimberly Hartke has created a Facebook page called Soy Alert, and I think that this should be announced on that. So I'll have to talk to Kimberly about getting this campaign going. Now, you had mentioned a little earlier about tofu, and tofu is one which a lot of the pro-soy try to bring up, that that's a form of healthy soy because they eat it in Japan. But as I recall reading in one of your blog entries that – in Japan, it is fermented. Here, it's not. Yeah, you see, uh, once again, they uh, when they make these generalizations, they never bother to look at the different kinds of uh, of soy foods they have. Uh, 
you know, I, in Japan, uh, the soy that they eat is generally fermented and fermented for a long period of time and fermented traditionally. The tofu you buy in the U.S. is almost never fermented. And, uh, in fact, I remember some years ago they had a study showing that Japanese-American women who ate large amounts of tofu in the U.S. developed all kinds of illnesses. It's just not the same as they had over there. And uh, it, it's like those people who treat all meat as the same. Grass-fed meat is totally different from uh, soy-fed meat. <coughs> Traditional foods are totally different than factory foods, yet the government and the food industry, and for that matter, the medical industry, try to treat all food as the same. They would just say tofu is tofu is tofu, and there's no difference, but there's uh, immense differences. Another difference I remember reading you talk about was that at least one Japanese culture, they actually fried their tofu in lard. Is that correct? I I most certainly believe they did. And uh, again, you have selective reporting of these things. For example, there's been a lot written about how healthy and long-lived the people of Okinawa are. And there's and some people will will claim that they eat a vegetarian diet, but uh, you know, after reading about some people who traveled to Okinawa to uh, ins- <clears throat> to inspect this, they found that the favorite cooking fat in Okinawa is lard. The favorite food in Okinawa is pork, fatty pork. But they also eat goat meat and so forth. And they don't eat that much soy. They eat a lot of sweet potatoes. And they've started to eat more fish now, but pork is king over there. But if you were to look at what they say about it, uh, I guess it's almost this evangelical belief. They will. You mention any healthy people anywhere in the world, and they'll find some vegetables they eat and claim that's all they eat. Right. That's another common evangelical talking point is claiming that these cultures that live long lives eat a so-called plant-based diet, which it's not true. I mean I've seen a number of them listed where they try to say, oh, all of these cultures eat plant-based. But in pretty much all the cases, it's not true because another one I've also heard them try to say that about the Hunza that they eat plants. But no, certainly meat and dairy are a part of their diet and – you look at any culture, it's there is some form of animal product. I mean, pretty much there is no indigenous vegan culture throughout history and even currently all cultures in their tradition have some form of animal products. Yeah, and even the ones that uh, – I think the only traditional culture that could find that was vegetarian, and even those, I might add, drank, ate plenty of milk and ghee was in southern India where milk and ghee was one of the, the staples even of the people there who considered themselves to be vegetarians. But in addition to that, they found that there were so many insects within the grains they ate that when they were making bread, it would have a great deal of insect in it, so they'd be eating a fair amount of insect fat and insect protein in their vegetarian bread. And they'd probably uh, slather it with ghee and drink and drink some milk along with it or some soured milk. So, no, you can't not find a single traditional vegan culture in the history of the planet. Right. The other thing about that Indian culture was when a lot of those people moved to India and they stayed on the same diet because in England where they moved, the there the vegetables were properly washed and there's also some pesticides that they were sprayed with. They actually developed anemia, so it was certainly the insects in their diet were helping them get their B12. 
So we have to take a little break for our sponsor, but I will be back with Stanley Fishman of Tender Grass Fed Meat. Wise Traditions Conferences bring a world of nutrition information to the health professional and health conscious consumer, and the conference meals and exhibit hall reflect our dietary principles. Join us this September 15th to 16th, Buffalo, New York, for our second regional conference, or November 9th to 12th in Santa Clara, California, for our 13th annual international conference. Learn and grow in wellness. See more details on WestonAPrice.org. And we're back. My guest today is Stanley Fishman, author of Tender Grass-Fed Meat and Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue, and we're discussing how to barbecue appropriately your grass-fed beef for upcoming Labor Day on Monday. And a little earlier, we were talking about how using the traditional charcoal is the best way. I think I want to ask you was, as far as cooking just like on the stove and in the oven, um, what is your thought about like electric versus natural gas? Well, it's uh, kind of funny. I never really cooked with a gas stove. It, when I've had opportunities to do it, I haven't wanted to. I can't give you a scientific explanation for it, except that it always felt wrong to me. And I, over time, I've learned to trust my instincts. I think that electric heat is just heat. You know, it's in many ways it's not too different from heating something in a traditional oven, or just heating something over a fire where you just get heat that comes up. I don't know. If or how gas is different, it's just not something that I've ever used. And uh, it seems to me that when I've been in houses where people have cooked to it, there was a smell or something about it that made me a little uneasy. Uh, again, I can't explain to you exactly why. I can just uh, tell you what my own experience is. Something I avoid, like the plague, are microwaves. I also try to avoid modern pans like Teflon and uh, and cooking materials that leach chemicals into the food and so forth. But uh, I, I would say in terms of what I cook, we basically use an electric stove and an electric oven. Convection ovens are good, too, but uh, that's pretty much it. And outdoors, we generally do everything in a covered grill now, which I, gives you a lot more control over the temperature and makes it easier to cook. I'm certainly with you on that about the electric oven. And it was a thing because I bought a house recently a lot of people were surprised that I went with an electric over natural gas because that just seems to be such the modern thing. And in fact, the house, there was actually a natural gas line hooked up. So I actually paid to have it, uh, have an electrical line created and got the natural gas capped. And yeah, people didn't know it. And I mean, it comes to a similar thing of everyone says, oh, but you know, natural gas, it doesn't release anything into the air. Whereas, you know, by, um, by electric, well, I mean, right now I'm I'm using it, you know, just through uh, coal power. But I mean, ultimately, my plan would be to, uh, you know, to get solar power. So essentially, my electric would be controlled by the sun. And it again goes to the matter of even though right now the thing is, what's done with all these fracking to set up all these lines is very damaging. And it's not just an issue of, well, we shouldn't build any more natural gas lines. I mean, if something goes wrong, they need they need to be repaired. And so that's damaging, fixing all of that. So I'm certainly a supporter of the electric oven and also a supporter of, like you said, uh, not using Teflon, the whole nonstick thing. I mean, that's such a scam. And it's it scares me to see that like in stores, that's like almost exclusively sold. It's 
you see very rarely like in a Bed Bath and Beyond uh, a stainless steel or a um, cast iron. Yeah, and when you think of some of the fumes that these things give off and that these are made from materials that didn't even exist a hundred years ago and that people are just letting eating food that's cooked in them and you know god knows what is leaching into them and you have the general health of the population going down so fast i think i think that's part of it and uh you know for cookware it's either glass stainless steel or cast iron and that's about it in terms of what i use right and certainly it's a good point that i mean the thing is this natural gas and also this nonstick, they're so new. And I mean, it's a thing that I certainly, I believe our bodies are meant to handle what we traditionally eat. We can't just automatically change to a system where we're eating, you know, be it off of natural gas or something from nonstick or eating a diet that doesn't have animal products in it. Yeah. Or has GMOs are bought to make GMOs, they have to add some bacteria in it to make the different elements fuse together or, or somehow break through the defenses that cells have against being tampered with. And there, again, there have been some studies that have found that those bacteria go into our stay in the food that's been uh, genetically modified and go right into us. And, you know, who knows what that does? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, our bodies are, are not just, uh, are not, I don't think equipped to just deal with all these new things that come in with them, and uh, uh, so I, I, I totally agree with you there. And you know, in terms of barbecue, I think barbecuing like our ancestors did—you could with uh, with pure charcoal, or what you could also do, though it's a lot more work—is burn some wood down until there's nothing but coals left and cook with that. But um, I find it a lot easier just to use uh, hardwood charcoal. Those are things that people have been eating and using as a fuel for uh, probably longer than we have recorded history. And so living here today after thousands of years of people doing that and our bodies adapting, it just feels much more natural and, and better to me. Now, a thing I read about recently was something called coconut charcoal. Do you know anything about that? Um, in, I have never really found any around where I am. I, I think it would probably be fine because uh, if they're if it's just made from coconuts and they haven't added stuff to it, uh, I know that they've used coconut shells as fuel on Pacific Islands for a very long time. And, uh, you know, people have used different things also, but, you know, given all the health benefits that you can get from coconut oil, I, uh, it sounds a little exotic, but I think it should work fine. Right. I imagine it might be hard to find, I mean, because as we can't grow coconuts here, which is really what led to a lot of the whole vilification of eating coconuts and coconut oil is that it wasn't a product in America. So what do they promote for, say, like cooking in oils? All the things that we have a subsidy on and that Monsanto makes, like canola, corn, soy. But, I mean, that was never the healthy oil. Coconut oil, that's always been what's healthy and Coconut is a very traditional food. Oh, it most definitely is. And it's a funny thing. In some of the old cookbooks I have, if people uh, can't afford butter or don't want to use butter, they often recommended pure coconut oil as a cooking substitute. And uh, the, the other thing is that you mentioned the canola and the soy and these other vegetable oils. Until the 20th century, they couldn't even make them. It requires 
technology and machinery and refining that uh, humanity never never had before the 20th century, and these things were never made into oil. And uh, as I'm sure you know, they have totally wrong balance of omega-6s to omega-3s, and I think they're one of the worst things you can cook with or eat. I mean, they, they oxidize if you practically heat them to warm. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not too much. But they're cheap, so, and they're profitable because with all the refining, they stay, they keep in a stable state practically forever. You could probably bury one of those in a time capsule and pull it out <laughs> 200 years later, and you'd notice no difference. And uh, no, it's, it's definitely not what we should be using. And in the barbecuing I do, the various bases and marinades and so on that I talk about in my book, they're always based on animal fats, sometimes olive oil sometimes sesame oil, which is actually pretty traditional oil because they used to make it by just grinding sesame seeds. But there's very few vegetable oils um, outside of coconut, sesame, and olive that are traditional. And the corn oil and, you know, canola, that's a hybrid crop that I don't think even existed before 1950. And yet it's taken over a huge part of the oil market, the cooking oil market. It just amazes me how people will throw away the the things that we've always eaten in favor of modern things. Just as I guess it's a result of marketing and propaganda, because otherwise it it just doesn't make sense. Right. So now oils. Now we have another area that also has been something that was pretty much the modern way is something all created by industrialization in the twentieth century, where before we didn't have it. So I mean, it really I see a thing in each type of food that there's always a theme of this didn't exist until the 20th century because of industrialization and cities where before we didn't have it and before we were healthier because in fact canola oil there is no canola seed the name of where canola oil comes from is it's actually called the rape seed but that wouldn't sound very marketable if they started saying it's cooked in rapeseed oil, or you see that on the ingredients. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And actually, they when they developed this, they knew they had to come up with a new name, and it was developed in Canada. So canola actually was taken by combining the words Canada and oil, and then adding an us so people would think of it like Mazzola, which was a popular brand of corn oil. or And they just they just named it that and called it that. And this reminds me of something else that Dr. Price found. All of these modern foods last a very long time without spoiling, like these, uh, like these oils and uh, so many of these things that have preservatives in them. Dr. Price, uh, from his research, decided that the more nutritious a food is, the faster it would spoil because it had life-giving nutrients in it that would cause other life to develop. There was, for example, there was this rye bread that he shipped from Switzerland. The people who lived there got most of their calories from cheese and butter, but they also grew a particular kind of rye bread there that was a traditional bread that they ate with. They only ate it with plenty of fat. But when he uh, tried to ship this bread home, it developed insect life very quickly. And you know, in his, his research, what he found is that the quicker something spoils, the more more nutrition it has. And now you have the supermarkets and, like you said, the need to transport food to cities. So they prize food that will last almost if it was meant for a bomb shelter. One of my readers mentioned that on my Facebook page. 
she called it a bomb shelter lifespan. And they do it not because it's good for us, not because it tastes good, but just because it'll last longer so they won't have to throw it out when it spoils and they can make more money for it. So in a sense, we're eating more and more uh, dead food, as I call it, which is so different than the live food that the people that Dr. Price studied were eating. Right. And now do you know if the rye bread that you're talking about, was that different than the rye bread that you typically find here in the U.S.? I think it's quite different. It was a different kind. It was a traditional one that they'd probably grown in that valley for thousands of years. Um, I don't know whether, I don't think they've genetically modified rye, but I, uh, you know, I'd have to ex- examine the bread, and certainly the rye breads you, you buy here are not going to develop insect life within a few days. I've never seen that happen. Right, because I believe traditionally rye bread is something similar to like a sourdough bread where there's a culture in it and it ferments. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. It's Traditionally, it's always been fermented and the culture has been added to it, which, uh, as, a, as I think you may have mentioned, that helps get rid of the anti-nutrients, which are a part of every grain. And, uh, you know, I, just thinking about it, I realize when they feed unfermented uh, grains to cows, the cows are getting a huge dose of all... The, the toxins that are with, that are put inside of every grain because the grains themselves are seeds and it's nature's way of protecting the seeds is to put phytic acid into it that prevents people from absorbing nutrients and other toxins. So when those cows are eating grain, they're eating a concentrated dose uh, when you consider how much cows eat of all these grain toxins which haven't been neutralized by sprouting or fermenting. I just realized that right now. That's a good point, yeah. I've never thought about that either, but that's certainly a good point. And that's a problem with the rye bread here is that it's not the traditionally fermented. They'll often add yeast. And it's a problem with sourdough too. I mean a lot of sourdough that they so-called label it that is not real sourdough because it will have a yeast in it, which typically you don't need in sourdough because you have the starter culture. A lot of times they don't even have the culture in it that – you have to be very careful of what's real sourdough. And even some of these ones that have the culture, they don't age the culture for a very long time. So it's really a thing of you have to know the baker. I mean for me, at, at best, I, I will only buy sourdough from someone at the farmer's market because I know the type of cultures that he uses. They're all wild cultures and I know that he ferments them for a long time. So unless it's something where I – He's not available because, unfortunately, you can only get him at the farmer's market. I don't buy any store-bought sourdough bread. I think you're very wise not to because the uh, – you know, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Price, when he, was, uh, when he was talking about grains, he basically was saying that grains should be freshly ground the day that the bread is baked and that there should be a traditional sourdough culture. They should be sprouted. And uh, that requires a great deal of time and effort that most people are not set up to do, and which you probably won't find in any bread you could you could find in a store. Yet that's the way he, when humans did eat grains, that's traditionally the way they ate them, breads anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's certainly a reason I think also for us getting unhealthy is certainly the matter of time. People don't have the time to do it. Um, one other place I do recommend, and this is somewhere actually that can be found somewhat national, at least in, I think in the larger cities, is there's a restaurant called Le Pan Cadotien, and they actually oh. have there a um, – they sell a number of breads that are – there's no yeast. They're all Levain bread, and they have a lot of great different varieties. I mean, 
uh, they're the real deal. They are actually found in the Wise Tradition Shopping Guide, which has has pretty high standards, so they make it in their excellent choices. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I just learned something else new, and I, and I will be looking for that. The uh, You know, getting back to barbecue for a moment, uh, one thing that, that I wanted to mention is that this uh, cooking method that I advocate, where you don't cook directly with a fire, works really well with grass-fed meats. If you put a grass-fed steak over a hot fire, it's going to come out tough and terrible, no matter what else you do to it. But it, it makes sense that the kind of cooking methods that our ancestors used would work better for grass-fed meats because that was all they had to eat. They didn't have grain feeding for most of humanity's lifespan, and they certainly didn't give them artificial hormones or uh, all these various drugs and other things they do, and I uh, suspect they didn't feed them candy bars with wrappers on them either. Right, or there was another farm I just read about. Because of the whole drought, they were feeding the cows I think gummy bears or something like that. Just yeah, <laughs> something so ridiculous. So I think there are two things to remember with Labor Day. As one is, you know, don't grill the meat directly over the heat, and the other is also that you have to use grass-fed meat. That those are both equally important to remember. So can you give us a little preview of what you're going to be cooking for Labor Day? Well, uh, yeah, what I'm, I'm probably going to do is. Uh, a barbecued prime rib roast, one of the recipes from my book, Tender Grass-Fed Barbecue, since it's a special day, and it's going to be cooked in front of some hardwood charcoal. It's going to be very simply marinated, mainly olive oil, and uh, it's actually a recipe that I call Hawaiian prime rib, and it basically is garlic, um, some salt, though the salt isn't added until just before it goes on the grill, a lot of black pepper. And I happen to have some kiawe charcoal from Hawaii, which is, uh, it's like mesquite. It's a long way for charcoal to travel, but it has a, a very unique and very nice flavor. And I'm starting to get really hungry as I think about it. But it's actually going to be very easy to cook. You know, once you have the a simple marinade and the right fuel and can control the temperature in a covered grill, it's, uh, it's ridiculous how easy it can be and how good it can be. You know, there, there's an old saying saying that, uh, going all the way back to the Middle Ages, saying that God gives us good meat and the devil sends us cooks. If you have good meat, you don't have to do too much to it to have it be utterly fantastic. And I, since it is Monday, and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the way I like to respond to Meatless Monday, I'm probably going to barbecue something else as well, maybe some marinated pork spirits. And I've got a few recipes for those in my book as well. And I actually use the recipes in my books as, as most of what I cook because uh, I had to cook them several times to, to perfect them, so to speak, and I still like them. So uh, that's the preview. But I, I haven't figured out a way to barbecue breakfast yet, but if I do, maybe I will. Right, and certainly the books are a lot of the recipes that I've been using to cook grass-fed meat as well. They're wonderful books. You can find them available on Amazon to order them and yeah i've i don't know about how to barbecue breakfast but i do know i have plans certainly since it is monday i'm also now following uh meat for every meal i found these great grass-fed uh beef sausage links so i think they won't be barbecued but i think that's going to be my breakfast for monday well that sounds good I, i'm thinking of breakfast for monday i've got some uh, grass-fed bison 
sausage. And I'm probably going to um, just fry them as patties. With, uh, they've got, they're mainly liver. So uh, it's good to get those organ meats, and, and that way I'll get in my three meaty, meal, three meaty meals. Those sound good. Yeah, I want to just also give a shout-out to where I got the breakfast sausage links. They're called Novi Ranchers. They're up a little north in California, but um, they sell them at a number of farmer's markets in L.A. and actually happen to be sold at a farmer's market, which takes place – Today uh, on the Saturday, um, you know, as the show's going on, so it's like I feel like you can't get more local than that than buying from you know the farmers market right around where the radio station is. And in fact, also, um, I recently <laughs> no. had a barbecue with the uh, the owners of the radio station with some of their meats and some uh, some of those pics are going to be coming up on my blog. Well, I'd, I'd like to see them once they're there. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I'll be glad to show them. And I always, I always love how you're. Uh, show some pics of uh, of the meat you cook so certainly i know okay. you'll be posting about the barbecue on your blog I'm looking forward to seeing that yeah and uh you know it's a funny thing i've actually read articles where people are saying that you you can't have a barbecue on labor day but only if you use gas and only if you barbecue tofu or some god-awful soy substitute for real meat uh I, obviously neither one of us are going to be doing that Right. So, yeah, you can read all about on our blogs about why we won't be doing that. Well, Stanley, it's been great to have you. We have to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, please tell listeners where they can find your blog. Okay. Well, I have a blog at tendergrassfedmeat.com. And I also have a Facebook page that has a link to it from the blog. And I generally try to do one, one article a week on the blog, but I... I try to post interesting and informative comments on my Facebook page pretty much every day. So, uh, we, and we, as you mentioned, we have some very interesting discussions there. Right. All right. Well, great to have you on. We have to go now to our desserts. This is how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. So, I've created an online petition to get In-N-Out Burger to serve grass-fed beef after the announcement that they're cutting ties with the Central Valley Meat Company. You can find my petition at change.org. Also, next week is the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund's annual fundraiser. It'll be held at Joel Saladin's farm in Swoop, Virginia. That's Polyface Farms on September 8th. You can still donate. Go to their website at farmtoconsumer.net and place your donation. And for those of you attending the L.A. County Fair this weekend, be sure to check out the booth for Proposition 37 to learn more about why you should vote yes November for the ballot initiative to label GMOs. That's all the time we have this week. Next week, my guest will be Sam Truman Hahn of North Carolina Children. To find out more about my news stories, my guests, and what's happening this week, this is my blog at appropriateoptivore.blogspot.com.